Hello, and welcome to Nat Alliance Now. I'm Jay Williams, and I'm the Director of Faculty Development here at the National Alliance. Well, welcome back, everyone, to our second installment of our Managing Cyber Exposure 2020 and Beyond podcast with Mr. Paul Burkett. Glad to have you back, Paul. So today, as part of our, our second installment, we're going to talk about risk management and risk management as it relates to the agent's customer or the agent's client. Uh, and so really looking forward to that. So uh, kind of give us an idea, if you would, Paul, of some of the things we're, we're going to talk about. Well, we're going to talk about the elements that everybody, that our, every one of our clients are having, business executives, presidents, and such not. And that is that they're getting a lot of increased regulatory pressure. They're getting a lot of unique security breaches coming their way. And a lot of stuff's hitting the headlines. And they're now facing some very significant challenges as they start to go forward in managing their business, but also managing the risk of their business concerning the cyber world. First off, they're learning to have to understand a highly technical and rapidly changing cyber threat landscape. As we talked about the last time, ransomware was a huge growth item and growth industry during 2020, and it has not abated, continues to grow. And it's impacting risk, and it's impacting extortion, and it's definitely, definitely closing down businesses. And then the second other challenge is that they have to try to decide how to manage the risk in terms of allocating resources and costs. What kind of security systems should they have? What should they prevent? What kind of training should they have? And what are the new challenges in the COVID-19 environment? Overlay all of that. Those are the concerns and challenges that business enterprises have today, and they have to start thinking through that. So so that, you know, makes me think of the risk management process. And obviously, you know, those of us have the CRM designation, understand the process of risk management. And, and the first step is to identify the problem and, and really, with cyber, that's kind of what it's all about. So what should agents be thinking about in this process of identification? Well, there's multiple layers, but uh, the first, we just start out with identity. What is a person's identity? Uh, because that's the main target for cyber criminals. So what is the name, the address, the phone number, the other hundreds of pieces of information that someone collects on a client? Uh, physicians, the health information, the financial information, financial advisors, and what they get is information, investments, access codes, bank accounts, wire transfers. And what has occurred is that identity theft has become the largest, fastest growing crime in the world. And through that, people are losing homes in terms of fraud on title, and we're seeing people are losing credit cards and bankruptcies. All kinds of items related to identity have come in. And what we're seeing is that data has become a very important competitive advantage for an enterprise. And as such, knowing what the customer wants, what they like, what market interests they have, gets them ahead of the curve and wins the element of attracting dollars to their business and enterprise. And so data has grown to that significance, the data mining of it, coming out and indicating uh, what you can do. And the key about it has been the element about how do you replace the data? It's the most difficult to protect and the most difficult to replace. I had a client who had to go back in 
and re-input all their data because it was uh, lost, and it cost them three million dollars. Wow! Now is that a is that a price tag for that? It's irreplaceable. They had to go in and spend that kind of money, and so there's a whole question about value. Uh, what do you put as a value? What do you in turn is the cost? And so identification is always going in and looking at this and saying, well, what's the value? What could we lose? For example, a trade secret that's made public, you lose the value of the trade secret and you can't sell that anymore and get the price that you got previously for that. Arguably, it's the important element for any enterprise to manage and protect their data. And the success and growth of an enterprise is on that way, as is the success and growth of a governmental entity. Many wars in the past have been fought over natural resources and governmental structures. We are now seeing cyber warfare becoming a major element and a major element over the rights of information. And there's a significant argument going on right now, pros and cons in the press, about that intrusion and that information robbing and such not that was going on during this last election. So all I can say is this is a true demonstrator that information has power and value and it's heavily underestimated and business enterprises and their agents and brokers have to get their hands around it. There's a reason cyber criminals want to go expend all of these resources, including artificial intelligence, to steal this information, it has value, and they want that value. And that's the key element to start to understanding the uh, problem that we have out there. You know, Paul, you hear a lot about information security from, from the news to commercials on TV, right? So what, what, what is information security? What does that mean? Well, there's very complex models and decisions out there, but I think for us in dealing with our client and what I've found over time is I got to keep it simple and keeping it simple gets me to really being able to get the client to focus on three critical qualities, the confidentiality of the information, maintaining the integrity of it so you can trust the information and making sure it's available at a certain time. Now, it's got an acronym that has people wondering what it really means, CIA. And I do not want to weigh in any way imply that it implies to the Central Intelligence Agency. I'm talking about how do you manage your electronic assets? And so when we look at it, we're talking about the confidentiality. Do we know what information we want to keep confidential and protected? And out of that, we have statutes that tell us what information needs to be uh, protected, federal and state, as well as national states telling us. The integrity is we want to make sure that information can't be changed. And if you understand the whole concept of a lot of the Bitcoin transactions and some of that uh, type of new technology, it was to protect the integrity of the information. It could not be changed. Therefore, that information, what you said was truly that. That is one of the items being attacked currently on the current vote. Was that information integrity guaranteed? Then the availability, and it means, is it available to the pro proper people at the proper time uh, who are authorized to do that? And an authorization could be certain passwords, dual, uh, dual authorization, and other items to get into that. So those three items, if you have a client that can understand and get those integrated and well operational in their system, they're well on the way of avoiding a problem and a subsequent 
downtime or loss that takes place. And that's why I like the simplicity of CIA triad. Confidentiality, integrity, and availability are the key issues to making sure you have a good managed secure system. I like that. I think it keeps it simple, you know. So let me ask you this. If I wanted to be a cyber criminal, not that I want to be, but if I wanted to be, what would I be looking for? Well, it's mainly about the money, and it's how you convert it to money and such not. The famous bank robber, Willie Sutton, said in the past where there is money, and that's why he always robbed the banks. That's where it was. He subsequently denied that. But in reality, prime bank accounts are a prime target. They have been for ages. And so banks have been the financial institutions have been the primary item. Willie Sutton had to use guns to rob banks. He risked his life and his freedom, in which he eventually lost. Cyber criminals today need only steal a password or a credential. And the risk of getting caught is very small, and the risk of being shot is practically zero. Uh, so it's, it's a high-risk, high high-reward type of scenario for them. What are they after? They're after your confidential information. They want to know uh, what your customers' lists and your contact information so they can fish them or they can farm them and they can send items out onto that. They want to get to your financial records. They want to get to the wire transfer records that you have with your upstream customers and your downstream customers. They want to get your credit card information. They want to get private information, patient health records, medical history. Uh, they want to use that for identity theft. And then, of course, the intellectual property and the value of copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade dress, trade secrets all get stolen. And that all has an impact on what the cyber criminals are looking at. They may also have some that for the joy of going after and taking a system down and doing uh, political reasons or hacktivism that's out there. And this is for attackers who have strong opposition to either side's uh, viewpoints. And this has been done quite a bit. And it's also been done in cyber attacks by nation states against other nations in terms of trying to get an advantage. So that's what they're after. They want the guts. They want to know why this stuff is so important and why it's private on that. That's some, some, some amazing stuff. So when I think about the risk management and, and all the things that I've learned about risk management over my career, you know, I always learned that that avoidance is the best technique. How does that factor in? It's not an option in this anymore because we have gone so far into putting everything in a database uh, format and put it in a digital format. We cannot return, so you cannot avoid the risk. You have to understand that the frequency of cyber attacks, the increasing uh, fines and noncompliance regulatory requirements coming down the throat of enterprises, the skyrocketing costs associated with security breaches, ransomware, restoring data, that it's no longer an item that you can ignore. Uh, you have to go in and address it with proper risk management. Avoidance is not an option anymore. When you have assets, there are vulnerabilities. Where there's value, there are thieves. So no matter what, it's gonna happen. Cyber criminals know the value of your information. You may not, but they do, and they know how vulnerable it is. Risk professionals today can no longer afford to underestimate the value of information or ignore cyber risk as a major threat to the organization. So if I'm an agent and I'm looking to sit down with a client 
and to do an analysis of exposure. What, what am I looking for in that analysis? That's a great question. I remember the CIA, remember the confidentiality, the integrity, and access. And then you start coming back and saying, okay, what kind of information are you concerned about? And generally, I try to keep it, again, simple with a client. And I say there's three principal categories of information I'm worried about, you should be worried about, and that is your public information, your confidential information, and your internal use-only information. And make sure that you have the schemes, the security, the passwords, the training to support uh, that those items are properly protected. So what do I mean by the public assets? I mean basically the corporate data sheets, the literature, can include any of the uh, intellectual property, anything that is proprietary in nature about your company, but you just don't want somebody to freely walk away with and use for their own items. Think about a real estate company with their ads and how they market homes, same item. They want to make sure that they have a unique way of presenting homes that they don't want someone else to copy. And so there's some public asset issues and way you want to operate. Then there's definitely the confidential information. And the confidential information is everything from financials, wire transfers, bank accounts, corporate credit cards. Uh, we get into all of the elements of personal data on officers, employees, on customer data, customer account numbers, customer transfer, wire transfer numbers, all of that confidential way that you do business. I had one contractor who never thought about his bidding package as confidential asset. And I said, well, what if I knew and hacked into your bid package and I knew how you were going to bid the road project and then I could come in and underbid that? Do you think I could disrupt your business model? And he said, well, damn right. I said, isn't that confidential asset that needs to be protected? Do you have your bidding packages hidden so that others can't get into it? Do you have the appropriate data that you use to support your bid properly protected? And he said, I never thought about that. And so confidential assets take on many, many unique aspects, and that's part of the identification. And then you have the other broad categories of internal use only. You know, insurance policy, supplier agreements, uh, purchase orders, uh, and then that includes, when you get to the internal use only, anything that you're doing on the web-based transaction. Uh, if you have a website and you're doing online transactions, that's internal use. That should be protected, as should be the website. And the website should be an HTTPS website with proper SQL protections. And those are additional items as you start to look into and start your analysis. We know that direct losses plus the managing of the data breach can be devastating for the, an organization. And so there are many other elements that ha impact us in estimating the cost impact of these items, such as today under regulations, uh, we have to know about credit monitoring, client notification, identity restoration, forensic analysis, data restoration costs, business interruption, and then even the element of brand and reputation protection and hiring an outside public relations firm to help protect us. So these are additional cost factors. And I call these below the iceberg, you know, the below the uh, floating iceberg. These are the hidden costs that you need to be thinking about as you start to bring together the overall program. 
Uh, public relations is one of the big areas. It's a bleeding over of information. It's not going to restore your reputation, but we know it can work towards that. A recent study that Ponyman had done and also our friends at uh, Experian found out that almost 30% of people who have been notified of a hack do not return to that client's business. Well, that has a bleeding away. And how do you bring back that relationship? How do you bring that back? Coupons and other items to go into it. We know a significant cost comes out of breach notification costs. And each state has their different rules, as does federal government and other governments. And in breach notification, that includes timely notice, includes frequently asked questions, may include website, may include a telemarketing group to come in and give information. All have a related cost to that. And then the credit monitoring is access to all three credit bureaus for a minimum of 12 months. And in some states, it can be 24 months of free credit monitoring at all three credit bureaus for a party. We know that identity restoration has become a big business, and it can be very costly. In fact, we know in some instances that the average cost is somewhere between 25000 per victim on an average basis to get their identity uh, history back and own the items and get them out of the tr problems we created. And then we have the forensics. We're going to bring somebody in that has to analyze the problem, find it. Well, once you find it, you got to fix it. So forensic analysis cannot be just finding the problem. we got to fix the problem. And it can last for months. And as we talked about in the first session, it could be upwards of 380 days before you know you've actually had a problem. What has occurred during that 380 days and what will the forensic have to fix in terms of that? So forensic analysis becomes part of the cost estimations. System and data restoration is a big item. And there's a whole set of codes and information out there. How many days it takes to get rid of a virus? How many days it takes to get rid of a uh, extortion claim or anything on that? So we need to know those. And then the big one, this is the ugly one, business interruption. How much money are they going to lose? How long? How long are they going to be down? How long does it take to get back up and running? I know of one organization that took them 30 days to get back up and running. What did they lose during that 30 days? How many customers did they lose? How much new business did they lose? All significant elements going forward. And so if you have anybody who has any web-based sales item, and the business interruption is a challenge to come up with a reasonable number in terms of that. So that's, that's part of your risk analysis estimate and cost. And there's a lot of work. Uh, works into this. Now, here's where the companies are helpful for us. Uh, they've got good checklists. They've got good applications. They help us to go through and start identifying that and to come back with some reasonable suggestions on approaches uh, in terms of that. But that is uh, part of our analysis that we've got to get our client to understand because we've got to sell the problem first before we can come forward with the solutions. Paul, talk uh, about control and prevention of risk, because those are also risk management steps, as you know. And so can, can, tell us more about that. Well, we know that every business resources are limited. There's only so much money that can be used around for payment of salaries, buying goods, and such not. So understanding how you're going to apply the limited resources for an operation concerning their cyber exposure becomes very important. So the first element gets into 
what are we doing to protect the bytes, the bits and bytes of the computer programs and the data? So information security is not about protecting devices. It's about it being able to protect the data. Remember, devices are interchangeable, replaceable, and expendable. It's not about the hardware. It's about the data that's on there. And so the protection has got to be focused on data and how we protect that. Also, because stiff fines and penalties are always about the compromise of data, we can probably say, well, we better have a good understanding and allocation of the resources for the data. So we have to be able, through good risk control and risk prevention, to locate, classify, and protect those critical information assets that I highlighted earlier and in either encrypt them or put substantial firewalls, limited access to that, and so that you know that they're going to be targets for being stolen. Securing the perimeter of the business enterprise is not enough. This is, there is time when a building moat was effective. It doesn't work anymore. They're inside the castle. They get in. The issue now is recognition and quarantining as quick as possible. How do I get them out of the network? How do I quarantine it? How do I find out what damage has been created? So the assault is from all angles and they're inside. We also have introduced a whole different dynamic now with the BYOD, bringing your own device movement, which has blurred that distinction. I mean, we're now allowing smartphones to go into servers, we're allowing iPads into servers, we're allowing it to be done from a Starbucks out in the community, uh, grabbing it through a Wi-Fi connection on an airplane going in. So think about all of that. And you suddenly go, my gosh, all these portals, all these potential entrances into the database have to be managed, have to be controlled. And we have to have good backups, good synchronization. We have to have proper recognition of who can get in, who can't get in. Uh, we're seeing more and more entities now pushing the virtual private network type system and the virtual private network being that each uh, phone that's given to an employee, a smartphone has VPN, so it protects that information that they are transmitting back and forth to the mainframe. Uh, those become other practical elements. So there's going to be good use of vendors to help you get the proper security. And then the ongoing mention uh, into that. The key question we always get in terms of this when I talk with clients is prevention versus detection. Detecting responds quickly to a breach, but prevention are critical, and they can be very, very expensive, and they're not 100% effective. Uh, the best folks for security, ATT and Amazon, get about four and a half minutes notice of a potential attack. And how they know that is their detection system identifies a similar pattern, uh, an algorithmic pattern, and they identify that and they start to focus on where it's coming in and what it's trying to attack, and they can then set up the, the response mechanisms for that. So prevention is where we're at. Detection uh, is a constant item, and it's going to be incident response planning and other items. But what's the biggest asset we've got is our employees. We have to make sure that they got proper training. They have knowledge on what is a phishing attack, what does it look like, what does a malicious outsider attack look like? 
Uh, what does a password being given to someone else, changing of the password, dual notific dual certification of coming in, I'm not a robot type things, all become significant elements in managing the employee component of working with the system on that. You can't rely 100% on your vendor or your IT department. Everybody has to be involved in this. And so they are a key player, just like the bookkeeper is a key player in crime prevention or employee embezzlement. It's still part of the overall problem. So everybody has to be aware of it. Everybody has to understand the allocation of the resources and make sure that people are hired that are properly trained, make sure that we understand our protocols for security, and we all take that uh, and work from that. Now, this has been recently challenged with the COVID-19, with people working from home. We've seen the management become very lax and not doing a good job in managing that exposure working from home. And we've seen some significant compromises to security. And primarily, it has come from ransomware that we would talked about in our first meeting together on that. So what do we have to have? We have to have care. Again, I'm coming simple terms. We have to have a consistent control program. Is it adequate? Are you satisfied with it? Are you looking at upgrades every year or what are you doing? Has to be reasonable. Is it fair, moderate? Do the employees adhere to it? Can you go into that? And is it effective? And effective is the biggest issue. Are you testing it? Are you knowing it's effective on that item? So care is becoming the key element of looking at cybersecurity. Now, I didn't invent this term. This came from Gartner who does a lot of security work and risk management work for firms in terms of setting up their cybersecurity. But it blends us into a way of understanding the type of controls. And it highlights then why we get those questions on the application about what are they doing? Uh, what type of security? What's their password protocol? What's their dual authentication? What's their a process of firewalls or setting up who gets access to what data. Do you have that set up? So consistent, adequate, reasonable, effective are the risk control and risk prevention techniques that we're always looking into. Well, once we get through that, we have to constantly keep evaluating where we're at. And are we doing the things uh, to mitigate it, to make sure that it, if it happens, what are we trying to do? Uh, stop and what goes in. And risk mitigation involves creating security awareness all the time, conducting vulnerability assessments, implementing policies and control, and then enforcing those policies. And those are critical components of success once you establish the risk control and risk prevention programs. So making sure that security is everybody's business. Uh, it's probably the single best an organization could take to significantly reduce this to make sure everybody is trained in cybersecurity awareness. Do every, does everybody on staff know what a phishing or a farming type of an attack looks like? Do they understand that? Uh, it's a simple practice, but it is a safe data handling methodology. Using simple passwords, clicking links in email, visiting unsavory internet websites, or sharing too much information on social can quickly lead 
to security breaches. Every employee has to understand that. And handling corporate information should earn their internet security driver's license. In other words, they need to be trained in terms of this. This need not be a time-consuming or erroneous item. It can be done with online training and uh, can be done very quickly with other tool aids that does not compromise any of the data. And in fact, a lot of the information that you would learn as an employee of a firm doing the security awareness has direct impacts to us at home, working from our, on our own computers and with our children and our family members that should be done in context of mitigating the item. You'll be surprised how few businesses do any kind of independent vulnerability assessment. I ask that question all the time, and it's really surprisingly, well, no, we don't think we need that. My gosh, you do. You really don't know what's going on out there in the computers by your employees. You need to have some independent vulnerability tests, and there's some excellent organizations out there that are providing these kinds of services at a very reasonable cost, and it's giving feedback, instantaneous feedback, retraining needs, and it's helping organizations to say, okay, we're reinforcing our front line, our employees, and our security systems. Remember, the firewall is not an absolute guarantee that you will stop any cyber criminals from coming in. So you have to test regularly your vulnerabilities. In fact, Everyday testing is being done by your uh, the cyber criminals. They're coming in and constantly probing every day, trying to find holes and finding your vulnerabilities and trying to get in and finding what it will take. And the best example of this is they've tested you for over a period of time on your social engineering and your ability to revalidate the request. And once they find that out, that they have found your vulnerability on social engineering, that you do not revalidate through another system i.e. a fax or a phone call, uh, they will go ahead and you will see money going out the backside on social engineering items. So you need to have that independent vulnerability. You need to understand what are the common ports or the common openings or the front doors that people are coming in on. Uh, one of my clients, the front door was this connection he had with the sensors in a grocery store for all of the compressor units and freezer units. That was an open port because that was a signal coming in from the sensors telling them what was going on. They came in through that open port. So it's important to understand what's open, how to allow the door to be open, what's the key to open the door. And in computer applications, such as remote locations coming through web access and such not, those ports become very important and they're very vulnerable. And you need to test them. You need to shut them down. You need to fix them. And you constantly have to be looking at that. And quarterly vulnerability tests are an excellent tool to start finding out where you have problems and you can start working on it. You can't fix them all, but you need to start and start somewhere in terms of the risk mitigation. Policies and controls are appropriate. They go into the employee manual and they go into the HR manual. And every organization needs to have clear policies and, and abide by them and make sure people understand it. Security controls are the saws and hammers that actually get the job done. Security experts design and evaluate controls. Controls can be preventative, detective, corrective, and recovery. They can also be classified as administrative, technical, or physical. Controls must be documented, reviewed periodically, and more importantly, 
controls must be tested to make sure they're effective in working through and de designing an effective risk management program. You got to enforce it. You got to test it. You got to controls have to be in place and document, document, document is critical. And if there is no documentation, uh, you're going to find yourself in a lot of problems and potential lawsuits and also in terms of any kind of administrative proceeding that could come against you by one of the regulators in terms of did you follow what you say you do. So, Paul, we know that, that there are several different risk transfer mechanisms, several, several different options in order to transfer risk. Talk about insurance as a risk transfer mechanism a little bit. I know we'll get into talking about insurance coverage in our last installment, but talk about the transfer mechanism. Well, there are two, as we know, there's non-insurance and insurance, and there's going to be a whole element about contract. And I'm not going to get into that. I'm only going to talk about the insurance transfer. And this very quickly is just that cyber insurance is a new insurance product. Uh, there are three basic elements to most complex uh, cyber insurance programs. There's a legal liability component which will protect against lawsuits as a result of a data breach. There's a business interruption component that will replace lost revenue as a result of the downtime. And then, of course, there's the breach notification costs, the credit monitoring, the notification costs, the elements related to brand, reputation, and forensic costs that come into that. Those are the three broad categories that you're going, we're going to talk about at the next time we get together. But the coverage for negligence is to deal with negligence in the sense that is it a strict liability or ordinary negligence? And it's become in many situations and states absolute liability. Uh, you breach, you're responsible for it. You had the data, you owed it to your customer to protect it. So that any individual or business that collects it can be negligent and they have to suffer the consequences for the misuse of the breach data. Cyber liability insurance at a high level is designed for this exposure. Now, we have to coordinate. We have to understand that we may have cyber liability insurance that may have a little bit of coverage in a commercial general liability, or maybe in a professional liability or an errors and emissions policy. But the reality is that lion's share of the cyber liability negligence exposure is in those robust cyber policies that are out there. Now, one of the common items that are out there is should I buy errors and emissions versus cyber liability? And this really gets into a, an area of client specific. We may have some clients that are technology-related companies, and they need to have an errors and emissions for their product and their service work, as well as for the protection of the care, custody, or control of other people's data. So you may have a situation where errors and emissions and cyber liability work together, and you have to have both. So the use of technology the selling of the technology, the servicing of the technology creates a tech E&O exposure with a need for cyber. If you're just a user of technology, you probably need just the cyber liability policy. And that's the argument that goes back and forth between, well, what do I need to have? 
uh, for my liability, for my business income, and for my breach uh, event type costs. And the co element of that gets back to is, do you need a cyber form? Are you a user of technology or are you a seller or servers of technology? And that gets us into looking at some of the basic elements of errors and emissions versus cyber liability. We have one other element that constantly comes through this whole thing for cyber, and that is crime. Where are you getting your crime coverage? Some carriers are giving cyber crime. Some are saying you go to a standalone crime form. Some are saying, well, you can't get your social engineering coverage under the crime form. You can only get it under a cyber crime. Knowing where the impersonation coverage and all of those exposures come important as well. We'll talk more about that the next time we get together. But these are all components of our nature of what we deal with in the risk transfer side of bringing in the insurance into it. We do know, however, that there have been some problems with cyber insurance. We have seen uh, that these COVID-19 scams are growing and uh, people are scrambling to figure out how to respond to it. And they're finding out that they have inadequate insurance, inadequate limits, and they're finding it difficult to keep their employees trained and educated because they're working out of different locations. And we do know that the FTC has had over 50,000 COVID-19 scam reports, and there's already been reported in 2020 almost $37 million of reported losses. So the product that's out there may not be responding as much as we wanted for the re remote work tools and other exposures that are going on out there, and that may need to be some refresher or review with our current clients that have cyber policies, how is it working and is it responding to the COVID-19 scams that are out there in terms of the insurance transfer items into that? So what we know today that cyber liability is a risk management sale, and we have to be able to constantly talk to our client about their business continuity plans. How are they keeping their employees informed and trained? What are they doing to protect their internet connections, their open portals? Are they using VPN to protect remote connections? Are they enforcing multi-factor authentication and passwords? Are they disabling administrative privileges when an employee leaves or gets sick? Are they protecting all endpoints? Are they managing their BYODs? And are, are they consider running even COVID-19 exercises or any kind of a testing of the current systems uh, to make sure that the risk management programs are in place. Well, Paul, as we reach the end of this particular installment, can you sum up for us just all the things that you've kind of talked about through this, this our, our time together this afternoon? Well, okay. We know that cyber liability and cyber risk management is high on the priority of senior management. And so they're ripe to be have a discussion about the problem. Cyber risk is complex, widespread, and growing. So they're looking for a partner to help them understand it and come back with solutions. We have to solve the problem. They have to manage the problem. They have to have sound risk reduction programs, risk prevention programs, risk control programs. 
They need to have established resources to safeguard the business and make sure that they fully understand the uh, problem. Some of my businesses are even now willing to pay to have someone come in and do a full risk assessment today to find out where they're at. And that risk assessment report I have used with underwriters to help in getting them the insurance coverages they need. So we need to know what important electronic assets are being protected, how they're classifying them. I tried to give simple tools that we could all use as we start to talk to our customers. And I tried to give you some practical steps, including how do you educate employees, make sure you have independent security testing, make sure you have the adequate policy in place, and then, of course, have a sound cyber insurance program, which we'll discuss the next time. That was the intent here, is just to give you an introduction, a blueprint of things you can do, and you can get a lot of this from your online resources as well as from your insurance carriers. Well, Paul, thank you so much again. You know, I always just appreciate the time that, that you are willing to spend and the knowledge that you are willing to transfer to to me and everybody who is listening here. And we appreciate that so much. So thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to our next time together. I appreciate it. Thanks so very much. You take care, Jay. You too. That's all for our second installment. If you'd like to hear more about something we discussed or suggest topics for future installments, send a message to podcast at scic.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time here on Nat Alliance Now.